I remember discussing this with um, a, a friend of mine some years ago. She was uh, uh, a bit older than me. She had teenage children at the time. She was a young woman in the uh, 1960s and she'd been involved in the protests and activism of, uh, of that decade. And 30 years later, she found herself animatedly discussing politics with her own children as they uh, headed towards adults, adulthood. And to her complete surprise, her son turned round to her and said, Chill, Mum. You didn't achieve anything and neither can we. And some, some commentators suggest actually that the present uh, generation of young adults is perhaps the first generation for more than a hundred years that is actually less idealistic than their parents. I don't think actually that's totally true. I've been greatly encouraged personally to see the, um, uh, the, the tent occupation at St Paul's. I was down there this week actually, having a look at what's going on. I'm not encouraged particularly because they're offering a coherent solution or even necessarily because that form of, uh, of protest is the best um, form of, of protest. <clears throat> I'm simply encouraged because people are prepared to engage, to question, to, to debate, to imagine that there could be a better way to live because by and large it seems to me that... that um, there is a mood in our society, not shared by everyone, but shared by too many, that is as pessimistic as my friend's teenage son. Um, a little while ago, the political philosopher Francis Fukuyama uh, wrote a book entitled The End of History and the Last Man. And in it, he suggested that the world is now reaching its its final form. He said, liberal democracy and capitalism are triumphing and as they do, we are entering at the final era. There will be no more change and development. This will be a final era of relative peace and prosperity. It won't be perfect, he said, but everybody around the world over time will come to agree there is nothing better to strive for. Uh, Fukuyama mainly presented the book as a hopeful, optimistic book. But it's very interesting how he ends. He confesses at the end he is deeply ambivalent about this vision of the world. The end of history, he says, will be a very sad time. The struggle for recognition, the willingness to risk one's life for a purely abstract goal, the worldwide ideological struggle that called forth daring, courage, imagination and idealism, all this will be replaced by economic calculation, the endless solving of technological problems, environmental concerns and the satisfied satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. In the post-historical period, there will be neither art nor philosophy just the perpetual caretaking of the museum of human history. If Fukuyama's right, you see, and many people suggest that his analysis, at least of the current condition of uh, the Western world, is, is brilliant and insightful, if he is right, even partially right, 
It seems to me that Christians are going to stand out from the crowd more and more. Because Christians cannot believe that this is the final form of humanity. We, we, we believe that human beings are, are, are glorious, wonderful creatures who, who are, are fallen now and admired in sin, both personally and, and institutionally on a wider level, but not, not destined to stay in that mire. We believe that human beings are heading for a last great day, a terrifying day of judgment, but a glorious day of recreation as well, in which all sin and evil will be eradicated. And in the meantime, we believe as Christians, we are not uh, uh, expected to accept the status quo. We are expected to do everything in our power to prepare for that final day and, and in part to realise that final day here and now, though it will always be imperfect. We are to labour to make this world in every dimension from, from vast human ins, uh, institutions to tiny insignificant bits of flora and fauna to make it more the way God intended to be. And that is a glorious labour, that is a dignified labour and that is a labour that will never end until Jesus comes again and finally completes this world. We are not at the end of history yet. There is more to work for. No, we won't solve all the world's problems. But we have the inestimable dignity of being part of a great story. The story of God setting out to heal a ruined world. And it's that dignified role that Exodus 19 introduces us or in, in the story of the Bible in fact reintroduces us too but introduces Israel as a nation too. We, we've, we've seen the, the, the story of the Exodus unfolding and, and as, we've, as, as, we've, as we've plotted it um, in, in this book, we've seen that it anticipates our story. In, in Exodus chapters 1 to 15, we saw God revealing himself as, as the powerful, saving God. Moses and Israel were, were liberated from slavery in Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, heading on towards the promised land. And, uh, and we've seen that that's very analogous to what God has done for us as believers as Christians here. For every Christian that is here, God has saved you and liberated you through Jesus' death on the cross, through, through, through the promise of his resurrection. And you are following in that glorious certain path, the path from slavery to freedom. Um, then, in, then in Exodus 16 to 18, we, we saw God revealing himself in one sense in a, in, a, in a new way as they wander in the desert and they face lessons in the desert. We saw that God is a God who provides for us whilst we are on the road to glory. 
manna in the desert, water from the rock we saw, um, uh, victories over enemies as, um, uh, as Moses prayed for them. Um, and even, it, even human wisdom as Jethro came and advised Moses how to lead, lead the people. God is providentially caring for his people as they head towards glory. So, we know what we're saved from. We know that God will look after us on the way. But here's the next thing we need to know. Not so much what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. And that's what Exodus 19 is going to uh, tell us. Um, James's um, um, quiz um, will have to wait till next week. Um, uh, we're just going to look at oh, that, that your, your observation of the, of the Ten Commandments. We'll wait till next week. We're going to look at Exodus 19. The first thing we need to see in Exodus um, uh, 19 is this purpose, this, this covenant purpose, that God is making a covenant, an agreement, a, a solemn agreement with them. The, the purpose for which Israel was saved. Um, first of all, we see where, where it happened. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the, that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. We, 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 they're safely out of Egypt. We don't know where, where this mountain was with, with, with certainty. It was somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, which is east of the Gulf of Suez, Suez in the easternmost part of what today is Egypt, but in those days wasn't. And it's in that place then that God gives his mandate to them. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to yourself, to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This, 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 this is, these verses are very, very rich. And I, I, I want to just pick out the key statements of their, their mandate, their purpose, the purpose for which they were saved. They were saved, first of all, says, um, uh, 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 says God, to, to have a new status, to be, as he puts it, treasured. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. The, the idea is, is, is of, a, of, a, of a precious jewel or, or, a, or, a, or, or some special possession of God. It's very similar to what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, when he says that he prays that people um, would understand, as he puts it, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. And it's very interesting, that, uh, that verse in the New Testament, because it's not so much the riches of our glorious inheritance that 
is true and that is mentioned in some places in the Bible. But here he says, I want you to understand that you are God's glorious inheritance. That from God's perspective, you are precious. And here he's saying it in the Old Testament. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Local churches are like jewels to God. The whole earth is his. As he looks over the whole earth, he sees that it is his glorious possession. But from God's perspective, when he looks over the whole earth, around that earth it, it is scattered with precious jewels, local churches. They, they are special to him. And by extension, you are special to him. You, you, you may feel your ordinariness. You may feel the weight of your sin and failure you may be acutely aware that you're just lost in the crowd as far as what human beings see. But if you are a believer here, if you are a Christian, if you are someone whom God has brought from darkness to light, you are deeply precious to him. You are his treasured possession. God was prepared to give his son, Jesus Christ, for you. To win your forgiveness. And, as the Bible says, to bring you to himself. We are saved for a purpose. The first purpose is in God's mind is that he wants you for his treasured possession. And uh, then the second purpose is not now new, new, new status, but new role. Did you see that in verse 6? You will be for me a kingdom of priests. Um, he uses interesting language here. That, that he's saving Israel to be a kingdom. Now that could mean just people under a king. That's the, that's the obvious way that we might uh, read it. But actually the rest of the Bible doesn't read it like that, that phrase. The rest of the, rest of the Bible reads it as in fact meaning a whole nation of kings, of royal people. Daniel 7.27 um, says that the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. The sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms be handed over. There's, there's a sense of God's people becoming royalty here. And that gets taken up in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 where uh, Peter quotes or alludes back to exactly this statement but there he makes it absolutely clear what, what uh, he means. He says you are a royal priesthood. 
kingdom of a slightly different kind, a, 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 a gathering of royalty. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But it actually fits into a bigger, bigger story and picture in, in the Bible because, uh, because the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were in a sense made as royalty. They were to rule over the earth, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and so on. And they, 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 by their sin, lost at least the full dignity of that status. And now, says uh, uh, God, you who have been called out to be my people are regaining the full dignity of your intended status as human beings. To rule over the world. Now, it's very clear when Jesus came um, and lived as the ideal human being, he didn't take political office. He didn't rule in power. He ruled and influenced the world and lived as the prince of human beings in weakness. And that is our calling, to imitate Jesus in this world, not catching power, not, 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 uh, not all the time seeking to dominate the world, to live in weakness, but to live with that royal mandate. Everything we do is to, is to be the kind of human being God called us to be. From building houses to sweeping streets. We are to care for this world. From, from designing new drugs to washing up, we are to care for people. You are, says God to Israel, a royal priesthood. You are human beings whom God has mandated now to fulfil your original intention, to care for this world and look after it. And, he says, you are to be priests. A royal priesthood. Now, if you know anything about ancient Israel, you know that within the nation, Israel had a priesthood. They had priests amongst them. But here now, God is saying that in one sense, you as a whole nation are to be priests to the world. The role of priests was very important and very, in, in one sense, very simple. They stood between between other human beings and God. They had unique access to God, the priesthood within the nation of Israel, through the, through the, the tabernacle and then the temple. They, they, they knew God in a special way. But they weren't to just simply uh, sit back and enjoy that. They had a particular role to mediate the presence of God and the truth from God out to the wider world. 
and what the priests within Israel were to do, so Israel was to do as a nation for the world. They were given a precious, special relationship with God. They were his treasured possession. And what were they to do with it? They were to come to know God and so tell the world about God. If you're a believer here, you're a priest. We as a church are priests to this world. That's why understanding the Bible is so central to what we do and then proclaiming it to the world is so central to what we do. Because God has given us that extraordinary dignified position of being a royal priesthood. But everything that we do is to be lived in that role. Every, everything you do out at, out at work, every interaction you have with a person, every, every little bit of care you give in this world is to commend Jesus Christ to the world. That is our role in the world. Massively dignified one. And then, from a new status to be a treasured possession and a new role to be a a kingdom of priests, we also are given a new character. You are to be a kingdom of priests, he says, verse 6, and a holy nation. That... um, word holy is actually quite difficult to, 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 to pin down in, in the Bible. You sort of instinctively feel that you know what it means and yet it is quite hard to define it. It can mean often set apart but um, more precisely than that it means set apart to, for, for humans often set apart to be with God. Indeed God himself is Holy, And when you examine what that means, it, it, it ends up, the best way you can describe it is, it is it's God's godness, his utter uniqueness, his utter perfection, his, 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 his extraordinary balance of characters, the, the, the majesty and the glory and the beauty and the perfection which is God is all summed up in his holiness. So, so when you have that in your mind and then you see that God has, has decided that Israel should be a holy nation, perhaps we start to grasp something of what God is intending. God says, I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to achieve that by, by, by way of your status, but, I, but, but I'm going to achieve it as well through transforming you. You are a holy people and I'm going to make you into a holy people, a holy nation. This is our mandate from God. And um, in, a, in a world that, is, that tends to slip into pessimism, it is an extraordinary and a radically different vision of this world than the pessimists have, isn't it? 
we as the people of God, you as a person chosen by God, are a treasured possession. You have a royal mandate. You have a priestly mandate. You, you have a, a, a mandate to be holy and indeed a promise from God that he will make you holy. Isn't that something that, that, that makes you want to live in a different way? No, we won't achieve everything. There, 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 there may have been a ridiculous um, and an unrealistic idealism in the 1960s, just as there may be an unrealistic idealism amongst those people camping at St. Paul's. But hey, I'd be rather with those then saying things are wrong and we must put it right than I would with that teenage boy who says, chill mum, we won't achieve anything. And that, that's the dignity of our mandate as a local church as well. We, we've put it this way in our vision statement. We are called to display the glory of Jesus in East Oxford and the world. That will happen individually as we live lives for God, nourished by our relationship with God, and we are committed to making that, that happen corporately in all sorts of ways as well. Because, uh, because as we gather together as the body of Christ locally, we display the glory of Jesus sometimes in a, more, in, a more, in a more intense way than any of us can do as individuals. That's what's going to be happening at the, at the live manger as God, uh, God enables us. That's at the heart of our, of our vision that we've set before the church of, of both planting to send um, over the coming years groups of people out into new localities to be Christ in that locality, to have a new jewel shining in Oxford, and also to make, make our, our church um, a, a useful hub for mission and ministry in the, in the long term. We've become convinced as elders that, that uh, uh, developing uh, the building is an important part of that. Not, not because it's a, 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 an ideal in itself, but just because buildings are useful tools. It gets tiring meeting in a school all the time. All of that fits under this mandate to be royal priests, holy nation, a treasured possession for God in this world. And if that mandate wasn't awesome enough uh, in itself as uh, we have unpacked it, the rest of Exodus 19 makes it plain how incredibly awesome it is. Let me just uh, show you uh, um, how that, uh, that this, this, this covenant relationship was um, bestowed on them as they waited at the foot of Mount Sinai. The people had to prepare for this awesome day when God would speak to them. Verse 10, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day, because in that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai 
in the sight of all the people. They're not to go near it, notice. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. You can, you can see how within the drama of the life of Israel, they are being taught, this is awesome. This is enormous. This is dangerous in one sense, what is happening here. And then in verse 16, God himself appears. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast and everyone in the camp trembled. You bet they did. They couldn't see God, but they had ample evidence that God was there. God was coming to confirm this covenant with them. Thunder, lightning, cloud, a trumpet sound. This is awesome. Very interesting, though, to consider how the New Testament uses that story and understands that story. Um, we're going to, um, and we'll finish, actually, in, in Hebrews chapter 12. And I wonder whether you would turn with me to Hebrews 12. Having got that picture into, your, into our minds. Page 1,211. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says, verse 18. You, Christians, he's talking to now, um, New Testament believers, people much more like us, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because you could not, because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. That's a quote from um, Exodus 19. The sight was so terrifying, Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now look. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He said, you've not come to that, that, that old place, Sinai, he says, if you want to place yourself in the Old Testament story, um, though there's value in placing ourselves in Sinai for a minute and thinking about it, it's much more valuable to imagine ourselves as believers at Mount Zion. That is where Jerusalem was, bought, was, was built, where the temple was at the heart of the promised land. He says, he says Mount Zion, you see, was a provisional place place where they met God along the way. But, uh, sorry, Mount Sinai was that place, a provisional place. But Mount Zion is the place where they dwell with God in the Old Testament. Still, in one sense, provisional because it's waiting for Jesus to come again. But he's saying, you believers are not in the provisional place you're as good as home. You are dwelling with God now. You believers are not, not in the place of, of, of fear. 
where the law is given and everybody trembles and people get put to death. No, no, you are in the place of joy to where thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You're, you're not in a place of uncertainty where the covenant is given and everyone's trembling and wondering whether they can keep it. You're in the place of certainty, he says, where, where there are, your names are written in heaven. You're not in a place full of, full of Full of, full of sin and judgment. You're in the place, in fact, of full salvation. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. If that covenant that was made was, was awesome, this one is awesomeness squared. This one is most extraordinary. And this one is yours. I don't want a single person who is saved, at least a single believer, to leave this place trembling with fear, thinking that they stand on the edge of a mountain. If they put one foot wrong, they could be struck down by God. Now, that is, that is the place that we stand if we haven't put our trust in Jesus. But if we have, we're as good as home. We can leave this place full of confidence, full of joy, now able, yes, with trembling in one sense, but not the trembling of terror, the trembling of awesome confidence because we are safe in the presence of God and now we go out to be that secure treasured possession in the world. We go out to be royal priests. We go out to live now as people who are being made holy by the power of God's Spirit. You know, I weep when I see people embrace pessimism and mediocrity about their life. And you know, I weep even more deeply when I see it in the lives of Christians. How could you set out to live a mediocre life? How could you set out to say, oh, I'll be happy if I earn a, a, a good wage, if I find the uh, partner, the best partner that I can, and we lead a happy life, and we have 2.4 kids, and I have a secure job, and I have a pension at the end of it, and I get to heaven. How could anyone live with that when they have been saved for such a dignified purpose? Take that on board into your heart and ask God, how should I live now as a royal priest? Because God has brought me to this place, to Mount Zion, to a place where I am amongst thousands of joyful angels 
celebrating, to a place where Jesus has shed his blood and now it secures me um, my salvation for all eternity. And I can live in this world as God intended me to do. I don't know what that means for you. I really don't. There is dignity in the vast range of things that we do for God. Everything that Adam and Eve were called to do, you can do with dignity. But I know, it won't be a sad life. And it won't be as Fukuyama described that life. Devoid of daring, courage, imagination, idealism. It'll be full of it. Because God has given you a purpose.